You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Before I launch into today's episode, I wanted to share some information about both the free four-part video series as well as the Holistic Coaching Program. The four-part video series is an integration of science-backed strategies from psychology with tools from complementary and alternative medicine offered with the intention of helping you cultivate four key pillars of resilience. The first being body awareness, which can really help you center yourself and live in a more present focused and embodied way even in the midst of extreme stress. The second involves tools focused on decreasing your stress response so that you can more easily access intuition and connect to your needs. The third is values clarification to help guide your decision making and living life intentionally in a way that really helps you prioritize your time, attention, and energy in a way that matches your values. And the fourth is focused on self-compassion. So ways that you can soften your inner critic and facilitate growth following mistakes. And so all of the tools shared in this series are meant to be customizable, integrated into a busy lifestyle, to help you feel more confident in your ability to both cope with and recover from life's stress and also help you target common challenges like anxiety, self-doubt, self-judgment, and confusion about direction, meaning, and purpose. So I'm so excited to share these powerful tools with you and hope you join me for that series. And the Holistic Coaching Program is a personalized three-month program that, like the video series, blends wisdom from Eastern and Western healing modalities in a way that is really catered to meet your unique needs. So the goal is to address healing in mind, body, and spirit and to help you cultivate more intentional, embodied, and fulfilled living through evidence-based psychology and through different branches of yoga including asana, the physical practice of yoga, pranayama or breath work, as well as meditation and mindfulness. And that program also includes Ayurveda, the sister science of yoga, which is an ancient preventative medicine system originating in India that focuses on daily and seasonal routines, nutritional support, the gut-brain mind connection, as well as various lifestyle adjustments, all designed to balance your unique mental and physical constitution. So if those resources resonate with you, please do check out my website, melissafoynes.com for more information. And there are links in the episode notes. I am so delighted to introduce Jesse to you today. He is a best-selling author and award-winning speaker, as well as a world-renowned expert who works with both individuals and organizations in very powerful ways. So as he puts it, to move beyond their limitations, unlock their greatness, and build their Camelot, which I so love for so many reasons. Jesse has a huge array of resources to offer in terms of his own coaching program, podcasts, 
Instagram account, Twitter, LinkedIn. So I'll include all of these in the episode notes, but he also has a very powerful and inspiring TED talk, which I encourage you to check out if you haven't already. So Jesse, thank you so much for being here today and for being willing to share a bit about who you are and what you do and what led you to this work. Melissa, thank you so much for having me. I'm really been excited, looking forward to this and happy to spend this time with you today. Oh, same. The feeling is very mutual. So Jesse, I wanted to start our conversation today by talking a little bit about how ritual can be an important part of our grief process. And when I think about ritual, I know people define this in different ways. I think about ritual being an intentional practice. So something that involves certain actions that we engage in with full presence and full heart. And I think ritual can serve different purposes in our lives. For some of us, it can be a way to honor and remember loved ones that have died. It can be a way to feel our feelings in when we're in the midst of a loss or a transition that does or doesn't involve an actual death. And the reason I wanted to start here is because I've been very inspired learning more about you and some of the rituals or practices that you've cultivated in your own journey in grieving. And it's also something that we see cross-culturally in different places around the world and in different species. So, so many different animals are known to have grieving processes, whether it's certain birds or chimpanzees, elephants, just so many different species that have a practice of touching loved ones, covering them with leaves and grass, staying with dead bodies for periods of time. And I recently learned that elephants will have grieving rituals, not just for parts, animals who were members of their own herds, but will stop and honor and have a ritual for elephants that were unrelated to their group. So I just think there's just a really Mm. powerful element here of ritual and the process of of mourning and remembrance and honoring not just for human beings but for animals as well and so would love for you to share a little bit about some of the rituals that have been important to you i know you've had the one year 1000 challenge the international sunrise and sunset day and, and probably many other rituals and practices that i don't yet know about but could you share a bit about what kinds of rituals or practices have been important to you in in your own journey, as well as with the people that that you work, your clients? Yeah, I'll give you three, Melissa. And I thank you for the question. I love this question because it it's a question that lends itself to creating some sort of structure. Mm. And I really believe that if we don't create structure to some extent and use rituals to help create that structure around our grieving process, inevitably we will create structure around grief or grief might become our structure. Mm. And when that happens, we have, we start to run into other sorts of challenges. And, and the three I'll give you are this. Number one is, is exercise. That's always been a ritual for me. And I can remember very clearly a time after my father passed away, I, I got up the next morning, went to the gym and I was laying on this bench, pushing these weights and crying as I was doing it. And I came home and my best friend called me up and he was talking. I said, yeah, I'd gone to the gym. He's like, man, how'd you go to the gym? And I said, it wasn't a matter of how I went. It was a matter of, I had to go because you're so, you're so any of us who have lost or have gone through any sort of loss know that when you have that level of emotional intensity inside of you, we need to have some sort of outlet. And unfortunately, I think, Uh, many cultures, especially Western culture, does a very poor job of creating structure that invites the the release or the sharing of it, the processing of it. And I think having some sort of physicality is a great way to help move some of that energy around. The second one I would say is whenever I go through some sort of loss now, I will basically empty the week out. And what I do with that time is I give myself permission to just feel whatever comes up. So I, I block my calendar off. Anything that is absolutely not essential, I just shut down. And it doesn't matter if I am completely heartbroken or if I'm just kind of, you know, I'm, you know, I'm okay with this. Like I expected it or something like that. 
I give a week of just really focused self-care nurturing, mm. lay on the couch, watch stupid movies, cry when I need to eat, eat ego waffles, have the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, whatever, whatever is going to be comforting for me that moment, still doing the exercise. I still keep that ritual in place too, but it's become this really sacred time. I think that any time that we lose, we go through a loss of significance when we're feeling grief, when we're fearing sorrow, when we're feeling pain, it's important for us to take the time to honor it. And again, I think culturally, we often do a very poor job of that, especially in Western cultures where sometimes companies give a couple of days for bereavement and then you're supposed to come back and be okay. And we've already made it so stigmatized of crying and being this. So we lock ourselves in the, and we end up locking ourselves in the bathroom, trying to process our emotion, just layering shame on top of guilt, on top of pain, on top of grief. And then the third one I uh, do, you alluded to earlier, is I create, I create, I intentionally do things to honor those I've lost. Mm. The, the Sunrise Sunset Day you mentioned before, it was very, it's now this annual event I do every year. I always do it on my, my earlier mentioned best friend. He passed away, unfortunately, a couple of years after my dad did. And I do it every year on his birthday and it's a fundraiser and all these types of things. But what it does is by putting allowing these significant dates to be on the calendar dates that would have still been days of ritual celebration, right? It would have been birthdays. We celebrated anniversaries. We celebrate. I want to keep that ritual alive. I want to still have that day be a day of celebration because in, in the early days of it, I used to look at those days as black clouds. You know, there was like this dark cloud and it was looming. So when I get to the month, I would start to feel just despair and sorrow because I'm anticipating myself feeling sad and depressed on those days. And I kept asking, you know, I, I, you know, would they want this for me? Would they really want me to do this? And if there's a day of celebration before, why can't it still be a day of celebration? And I think that's imperative that we still, especially when it comes to death, we still proactively celebrate the life and the legacy of those people that we love. Because there's, I, I, I'm of the belief that oftentimes some of the most important lessons and some of the greatest sources of love that we can receive from those we care about often will come after they've passed away. I love so much about what you shared, Jesse. And one piece that I love about what you shared is how these rituals, these practices don't have to necessarily be fancy or elaborate. They do take time, but they don't have to take extensive periods of time. It really is about what serves us in yes. this moment. And it can also change in different seasons of life, these rituals, or they might always stay the same, but to be open to what that process needs to look like for you, like you said, whether the intention of the ritual is to have an outlet for emotion, whether the intention of the ritual is more to honor and remember and celebrate the legacy of the person who died, but, or whether it's more about self-care and nourishment and restoration, regardless of how consciously we feel impacted by the loss in a given moment, carving out that time and space. And so I think even just naming that there is so much power in actions that aren't elaborate, that can be simple, that can be integrated into our everyday, I think is a really powerful insight because we don't have to necessarily travel or organize something that involves other people. It could be something very personalized to us. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about the sunrise, sunset day, or even these other rituals in terms of how you landed on them. How did you become aware that this was the way that you wanted to honor these loved ones. This was the way that you wanted to express or experience your grief at that moment of time. Because I think so many people are hungry for some kind of ritual or container or structure as mm -hmm. you highlighted, but are so grief stricken that they don't really know how, or maybe they don't have models for how to do this. Because as you said, we live in a grief denying, grief phobic culture. And so oftentimes we don't have models for what this looks like. Yeah, my my first my first significant real significant loss. I had gone through losses before, but I guess my first real significant grown up loss was one of my closest friend, friends. Gabe took his life, and it was this whole thing where 
I, I found him when he was still alive. So I went through, it was, there was this layered loss. There was this physical loss of death, but there was also this, this loss of innocence of going through that whole, the whole process with him. It was a, it was a loss of other friendships that were, you know, everybody didn't really know how to relate to one another after all that. And as I struggled through that, I found myself finally getting to a point where I was coming out of it. Ironically enough, I was in Haiti after the earthquake and was doing some sort of humanitarian work, trying to help out afterwards. And I returned home after Haiti, finally feeling happy for the first time, only for my dad to drop dead unexpectedly a few days after returning home. And my dad had gone through a, a two-year battle with cancer prior to that, where, and it was, it was the, the irony of it wasn't lost on me. And I don't know if irony is the right word, but the, the juxtaposition of Gabe taking his life because time seemed like the enemy to him. The idea of living with more, living longer, having more time, feeling as he's feeling was, it was seemed like it was this impossible wall for him to climb. And then my dad had spent the last few years of his life fighting for more time, trying to earn more time. And so time was a central thread for both of them. And I found myself after their, their deaths in such close succession feeling sad and happy, grief stricken, depressed, you name it. Like, but I was also acutely aware that in my moments of raw honesty with myself, when it wasn't, the focus wasn't just on me, but I made the focus about them because I think there's grief, there's an understandable feeling, right? But then there's the despair that we will often fuel the intensity of some of those emotions with. And I think much of that despair is often, it's often fueled by self. It's a self-focused, right? We're, we're looking at me, 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 me. And what I would start to do is look at them. Mm. And I would keep asking myself, you know, how, how would Gabe want me to live? What would dad want me to do? Would they really want me to be depressed and sad the rest of my life because they died? But they really want me to shudder and sob every time I mentioned or thought of them. And the answer kept being no, no, no. And so then the question became, well, what would they want from me instead? And then it was, it was clear, be happy, to love, to live life. And, and then that led to the question, well, what would that look like? How do I do that? So I came up with this idea to do a, a thousand things I'd never done before in one calendar year to, to stretch myself out of my comfort zone. And like you said earlier, Melissa, I want to be very clear with a thousand things. Most of these things did not cost a lot of money. Most of them were free. I think I did the average and I think I did a thousand and thirty-two things I've never done before that year. And the average cost was right around two dollars or a little under two dollars for the whole year. I, I made rules. I had to do at least one new thing a day every day. So you do the math, you have to average three. And the whole purpose of it was, it was, it was about living with intention. It was about mm-hmm. deliberately breaking down some of my habits and routines, because I think the other thing that's important to mention is our emotional experiences, especially when they're intense, can become habituated, right? So there's, there's, there's the intense feeling of grief, intense feeling of love, intense feeling of anger, all those things. And if we're not real cognizant of it, it can become a habit. And pretty soon months have gone by and we're, we're grieving, we're feeling not necessarily because that emotion is what's present, but because we've created a habit around that emotion. And what I was trying to do is I was trying to create habits around building and experiencing happiness. I wanted to be happy. I want to be happy for me, but I want to be happy for them. And as I was doing this whole, whole journey and started to get people following along on social media and people from all over the world, I thought, God, wouldn't it be cool to to do this thing where everybody could share the sunrise and sunset together one day, just as an idea of showing that, you know, we, we oftentimes, the media does an excellent job of this of trying to make us seem so different, mm-hmm. right? We're different because of, of where we live or our religion or our skin color or belief systems or education or whatever it is, our political affiliations. And I, I was really just so passionate about, because as I was talking in these conversations with people all over the world, you'd see, oh my God, we're so similar. We're so similar. We're so similar because it's all humans all over the world. Right. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go as global as possible and really highlight humanity? That would be the sun that we all share. And, and so it was an idea that we could, we could do this thing of really having to do this, this harmonious human experience Acknowledging we all share the same sun, but we could also kind of show a postcard of our, our little part of the world. 
not having big expectations, but that first year we had something like 30 different countries, people from 30 different countries participate. It was so incredible. Mostly we got to see the sun rise and set literally around the world that day. Wow. And there was, you know, iconic ones in front of the Eiffel Tower. And then there were simple ones out in some remote field in, in Southeast Asia. Mm. You know, it was, it was just every little beautiful facet of humanity and everybody experiencing all at once. There were some that were people you could tell they had really put some effort into editing and digitizing. And there were some that just, they took it and it was foggy and rainy and it was just, it was authentic to what was going on in their life that day. Mm. And I put them together and made this little slideshow video of it. And I showed it to my best friend and he was, he was in uh, South Africa at the time with a couple other friends and he, he called me and he said, yeah, we're all over here crying. That was really powerful. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I used to always you know, talk to him about sunsets and every time we travel, I'd show him pictures of this and stuff. And so when he, he passed away a couple of years later, I thought, wouldn't it be neat if I took this event that had already so much meaning to so many people and turned it into a fundraiser to raise money for his nonprofit. And the first year we did that, it was incredible. There was, I think, probably 10,000 plus people who participated from over 110 different countries. We had all seven continents participate, even Antarctica sent in photos. Wow. And it was, it was so beautiful to see people stop, pause, be intentional about taking this moment for themselves and living their life. And so what it's involved into now is it's an annual event that happens every year on September 12th. And the intention of it is for people who participate to pause and take a moment to just be present with their loved ones they've lost. Mm-hmm. You know, spend a moment in this. I think the, that time when the sun is rising and the sun is setting, you know, how I experience it, it's, a, it's almost like time freezes and stands still for a moment. It's like all the world is happening, but this one moment is happening just for me. And it's a moment for me that I invite those I've lost to be present with me. And I feel like I'm present with them. And it's a time for me where I feel like I connect with them. And I, what I encourage people to do is just take that moment for reflection for themselves and snap a photo of their sunrise or sunset. It doesn't matter if it's a perfect sunrise or if it's foggy, rainy, because that's life. Share it. And then the second part of this is encouraging people to either make a donation to an organization or charity that their loved one would it would be meaningful to them or perform an act of kindness in honor of their loved one. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's my favorite holiday. It really is my favorite holiday because you see the entire world come together and all of us are sharing in this experience, just like you, you, you mentioned their animals earlier. We all have gone through this grief. We've all gone through this loss and we're all taking a moment to celebrate the special people in our lives. Wow. This is such a powerful example, Jesse. I, I love this practice of integrating presence with action. So, so really being present to your feelings, really feeling connected to the people that you have lost, even if it's for a few brief moments, as you said, and then weaving in some kind of action that helps you feel connected to them is a way of honoring them. Because when I think about my own life, even if I'm not considering grief, I think that there is just so much power in that combination of presence and action. And I think especially when it comes to grief, and sometimes we can get stuck in one or the other without having both. We'll, we'll be very yes. present to our feelings, but there isn't an action step that helps us feel connected, or we're so caught up in the action that we're not present to the feelings and the memories. And it just feels like that integration of presence and action is also a way to allow joy and grief to coexist. And that was something else that was really powerful, I think, in what you shared, because I know you and I have talked about this before, but so often when we have a moment of joy, when we're in the midst of grief, that can bring up guilt or fear that we're going to forget this person, that we're not honoring them. And so I think 
there are ways that we can practice living out that coexistence of these emotions. Because again, that isn't something that we're necessarily taught how to do. And, and even when I think about our values in our lives, there's this important component of presence and understanding what our values that are truly ours that matter the most to us and then action. So what are the ways we're going to live out their values? So this combination of presence and action and the ability for these different dimensions of emotion to coexist is a practice. And the way yes. that you shared these <clears throat> activities, it to me just feels like a really beautiful example of this practice of, of living out so many of these aspects of what it means to be human. I agree. I think, I think, if we can look at our emotions, you know, emotions are really life in essence, right? Our life, we do, we're playing the game of life for the emotional payoff, inevitably. Everything we do, we do because we have some sort of belief that there's going to be some sort of feeling at the end. It may not be the initial thing we think of or we focus on, but if we start to really play in that space of getting to the core of the why, it's always emotion. And emotions are like, uh, are like muscles. If you've ever trained to run a race, you know that the first day you go out and run, it's really hard. But if you keep running, you keep running, keep running, eventually you start to adapt, you get a little more consistent, you, those muscles strengthen, you're able to run further, further, faster, whatever that is. You try to do a push-up, you might only be able to do one, you keep with it, eventually the muscles get stronger and you can do five, 10, 15, however many. Where emotions are, I think, very much the same way. It's just, we start to fall into habits of exercising only certain emotions. And especially when they're so intense and so present, that we can start to fall in the habit of exercising those emotions a lot. And so then when we do start to feel joy, it might seem as such a contrast to it, even though it feels better, but we've become so habituated in these other emotions and we have our own, we haven't made peace with our own behavior, our own, you know, our own judgment of ourself as how we existed in that relationship with those people. And I think sometimes we will, we will use guilt as a penance you know, we think that I have, I must continue. It's, it's kind of like giving myself a lash, right? I must, I must continue to feel pain to, you know, pay for the sin I did in the relationship or I didn't do enough or I wasn't this, or I wasn't that. Or it's also, as you, you mentioned, it becomes this way for us to quantify our love. The more pain we feel is just some indicator of how much we love. And, and so people will start to make a decision. You know, I'll never love again. I'll never feel that way. My life will never be the same. It'll never get better. We make these lines in the cement decisions that are most emotionally vulnerable moment. And then we start exercising those emotions, strengthening those emotions to help justify, build the foundation around the decision. And it's, and it's one of those ones that if we ever considered, you know, the people that we love and lost, would they really want you to never be happy again, to never smile again, to never love again, all those types of things? Probably not. But we have to, because we've made the decision, we have to exercise the appropriate emotions that are going to help us create the reality. And that's why I think that that dialogue for me has always been so critical with the people I've lost, because there's a truth in that. I might lie to myself. Oh, Jesse, you didn't do enough. You should have been a better friend. You should have this. You should have that. You know, you know I, might, I might be willing to lie to myself. It is going to be much more difficult for me to lie on behalf of my father. You know, dad would want me to be unhappy to have rely on behalf of Gabe. Gabe would want me to be miserable the rest of my life because he because he took his life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think we'll often, and that's kind of the nature of our own lives, right? We're often much willing to break our own agreements with ourselves, but we're not willing to break it so much with other people. I tell you, most I'm going to be here at this time. I'm going to be there at that time. But if I say to myself after, well, I'm going to get this done at this time, yeah, you know, it's Friday. I didn't sleep as much <laughs> last night. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to know any different. Mm-hmm. And so there's that accountability piece that I think becomes so vital in it. Just as if we're doing a traditional exercise program or we have any goal we're working for, we find over and over again, we're far more successful with that when we have someone to hold us accountable. And for me, I pick for my accountability pieces, the, the, greatest sources of emotion for me, which are the people who I've lost. Mm -hmm. I think that is such another powerful life practice to be able to connect with 
these people that we've lost in a way where they can still have a presence in our lives. Because something that I've heard you talk a bit about before and is something that I have seen in my own life and my clients' lives is that when we experience grief in the form of death of someone else, we're, we're not just grieving their absence in our lives, the, the memories, the loss, we're also grieving the anticipated future or the future memories or the dreams that we had, those sort of imagined future moments as, as you call them. And so for so many of us, something that can help us be with our grief is to maintain some kind of connection to something, whether it's the people who have died, whether it's other loved ones who have experienced other forms of grief, because as you have said, grief is an experience that unites us all across the planet, across species, and this actual specifics of who we've lost vary and the circumstances vary, yet most people can relate to what it what that rawness of grief feels like, that moment of despair, of terror. And, and yet so often in our grief, we can feel so alone. And so I think for so many of us, there's an important process of reconnection, whether it's to ourselves, whether it's to other people. And it can look so many different ways. It can be more about prioritizing self-care can be more about being more in nature a place that you share with someone that died or something that's your something that's your own it could be like you said maintaining a a connection to those that we have lost in a way where we still feel their impact and their presence in our lives their guidance their wisdom affecting us in the here and now but but there being a really core element for so many people of connection to something that can help us work against that feeling of isolation yeah i think i think melissa when humans when it's when we're at our most emotionally vulnerable the extremes of our vulnerability is inevitably where we start to turn feelings into facts right so it, and mm-hmm. vulnerability extremes would be love anger grief mm-hmm. fear those types of things it, we start to turn really make feelings in the facts. I, if I feel this much of a feeling of love, then it must be my soulmate, the person that to be with. If I feel this much grief, if I feel this much fear, whatever it is. And when we, when we find ourselves there, we can start to form identity around those things. And I think that's the, that's the power of community, right? Because communities ultimately, it, a piece that we're seeking with identity, right? We all want this sense of belonging. We all want to, we all want to come together. We all want to feel like we, we we're part of something more than ourselves. And when we have communities formed around intense emotional experiences, well, that's going to be a pretty powerful bonding agent. Now this can be a great thing or it could be a, maybe a detrimental thing, depending. Mm-hmm. There are some people who will stay in a perpetual grief cycle not because they want to feel grief all the time, but because they formed a community, a community around grief and grieving. And their the very survival of their identity within that group depends on it. You, you have friends who, if you have five people who smoke and they all know that they probably should quit smoking and one of them starts to do it, the hesitancy to do it is because they risk being ostracized from the group. Mm-hmm. And if they go and do it and they venture that, and now the group no longer accepts them, now they're out in the space of who am I now without this group? And so I think it's, it's this thing of, again, asking those questions first, because otherwise, if we start to just go with turning our feelings into facts, we start to allow, if we're not careful, our emotions will influence our behavior in which direction we go. And so it's so important to be able to ask these questions. I always encourage people, look at your emotions as messengers. They're messaging and they, they, they show up literally, but they have, they're there to be a conversation buddy. So sadness shows up. Instead of making the declaration, I feel sad or I am sad, which feeling is a feeling, but sometimes we say I am as an identity. Mm-hmm. Ask the question, you know, wow, I, I notice I'm feeling sad right now. Why am I feeling sad? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm feeling sad right now because, well, because I you know didn't sleep as much. I'm a little hungry. And I was thinking about this earlier. This song came on. It reminded me of this. 
Hmm. That's really interesting. You know, is there anything I need to do with this sentence? Yeah. You know, sit with it for a little bit. Okay. And then how long should I sit with it for oh, three, four minutes? And then after you sit with it for three or four minutes, what should you do? Well, you know, it'd probably be really good for you to get up and go for a walk. And if I get up and go for a walk, what would I like to feel? And what would I like to experience when I go for a walk? What I'd like to feel and experience when I go for a walk is I'd like to feel a sense of, of calm. And I'd like to start to experience, you know, just the, the, the beauty of life. Okay. Well, what do I need to do to, what do I need to focus on to do that? And you start to see that there are some things that are, are in there that these emotions can communicate with us if we're willing to have the conversation with it mm-hmm. instead of just immediately accepting it as kind of the gospel in that moment. Mm-hmm. We're such kindred spirits in this way, Jesse, because I too believe that emotions are such important messengers. They're here to communicate something, whether it's an underlying need that isn't getting met, whether it's begging for our attention in a certain direction that we've been ignoring or minimizing or suppressing or invalidating in ourselves. So to approach emotions with a stance of curiosity, to figure out why is this here? Why is this showing up? And once you uncover the why, figuring out how to meet the why. So like you said, what are some of the reasons that this is here? What do I need? And how can I go about meeting that need? I feel like that is such an important process for us all and something that we can easily lose sight of in our culture and just the way that it that it operates. Um, because in many ways, our culture isn't necessarily just a grief denying culture it's not really a culture in which experiencing and expressing of emotions is often validated or celebrated or praised like you said if you start crying in a work meeting because you're reminded of someone that you lost because of or a divorce or, or whatever the situation is because of something that happened in the meeting it's pretty rare that someone turns to you and says oh, this is so great that you're feeling your feelings. Like, thank you so much for doing this, right? People might look at you funny. They might interrupt. They might say, do you need a minute? Like you said, do you need to leave? Excuse yourself. So all this to say, we don't necessarily exist in systems and structures in our society that support this curiosity around emotion and uncovering the underlying needs that are getting met, that are not getting met. And sometimes that process does take time, but it is so, so important. And, and, and the other thing you said that I wanted to follow up on was how connection it can look or community more specifically can look very different for each of us. So for some people in the depth of grief and despair, there can be something very healing about a peer support group or being in a community online of people who have had similar losses. And for some people, it can feel somewhat destabilizing or even traumatizing to be around people who have had similar losses and hear details about their losses because it just, it feels too tender and too much. And so for some people, community might mean talking to a trusted friend or a therapist, or as we said, connecting to nature and being alone, but just connection and community being something that can be small, that can be broadly defined. It doesn't necessarily have to look a certain kind of way. I think we have certain assumptions about what community means or what connection means in the context of healing from grief, getting support in our grief. But I think it's important to rail against that to some extent and to figure out, again, coming back to emotions, what do we need? What is the underlying need here that is causing this emotion to come to light that is worth me paying attention to and listening to and figuring out how to attend to? I think there's an opportunity too with that, Melissa, to piggyback on that is, is with our communities, it's so imperative that we communicate to our communities how they can support us and what mm-hmm. we need because most of us don't know. And it's, it's, it's funny to say that because why, why should us when we're in the throes of grief, you know, it, it seems weird to say, I I'm so sad. I'm gonna pick up the phone call and say, Hey, Melissa, like, this is how I'm feeling right now. This is what I need you to do to support me. 
you know, society would suggest that Melissa should already have intuitively figured out what I need. But last time I looked, you know, Melissa didn't have some sort of psychic ability where she could read my mind and do that. But we, we think that's what we're supposed to do. But really what we can do is, is empower our communities to support us. And what that looks like is this. So I remember after Gabe died, a friend of mine at the time, I saw her for the first time after he had, he had, he had passed. And I remember her coming up to me and giving me a hug. And there was a moment like she hugged me and then we kind of held each other and she looked up at me and she said, I want to, and she's crying. I want to help you so bad, but I don't know what to do right now. I want to help you so bad, but I don't know what to do right now. And I remember looking at her and I said, and I basically said, just thank you for saying that because it was real. It was true. I didn't know how to help me because it was the first time I'd really gone through. I, I was figuring things out as I went. And, and from that, what I've learned over time is as people start to reach out and ask, I'll give them feedback and just say, hey, this is, this is what I could use right now. This is how you could support me. These are the kinds of things that would be most helpful. And it sets people up for success. It, it's not, it, it might seem like it's awkward conversation to have. But hey, here's the thing. You're crying so hard that snot is coming out of your nose. Your eyes are bloodshot. You're not sleeping. Your hair is a mess because you didn't forgot you just wiped your nose and put your, your fingers snot through your hair anyways. So you're already at one of your awkward and most uncomfortable times in your life. And if you're willing, because you, and, and communication is going to happen inevitably, whether you're communicating with self or you're communicating outwards with other people. And what this does is it creates some sort of dynamic to have a communication framework or a communication network that's loving, supportive, empowering, that's nurturing in the way you need, as opposed to it being the other piece, which is just leaving people to basically roll the dice and see where they land. And that could be in a place where, yeah, it's, it's loving and nurturing, or it could be at a place where something they say is hurtful. And now you've just compounded the hurt that you're already feeling. I choose to believe that people do the best they can with what they have in any given set of circumstances. And I also am willing to acknowledge that many people who might want to support me, love me, nurture me during challenging times may not have had my life experiences, lived my life, lived my life journey. And they may also be absent of that psychic ability that I wish they had mm -hmm. so they could just figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. You know, in our relationships, we can't figure it out when our partners are saying, just leave me alone oh, everything's fine. We know there's something not, but, and if we accept that, it always ends up going backfire, but we still can't figure it out. That's why I have to keep asking, right? Mm -hmm. And if we can't figure it out with the people that we've shared most of life with in the most normal times, how can we expect people to figure it out in the most trying times? But we can empower them to do that. And I think, so it behooves all of us is as we go through these things, to take notes rather mentally, but I'm a bigger fan of like, you know, writing it down on a notepad or a phone. Mm -hmm. And that way, when it comes up again, you have a reference that you can send in. And I've even sent big emails or texts before after, after I've lost someone just said, Hey, like, you know, this is, this is what's going on. These are some things that'd be most helpful and supportive of me. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really, it's a really incredible thing in the healing process to have surrounded yourself with people who you've empowered to help you heal. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is such a valuable set of points that you're raising, Jesse. And I think it also takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to express to the people in our circles what we need once we become aware of what we need, because sometimes we don't realize what we need until we get what we don't need. And that helps clarify. And I say that because so many of us have had experiences in our grief of feeling dismissed, rejected, invalidated, not heard, not because people are meaning to do that necessarily, but because like you said, they just don't know how, or they don't know how to align what they're providing with what we need. And so it may often be unintentional. And when we have been hurt by those reactions from other people on top of coping with the grief that we're experiencing, sometimes it can feel pretty overwhelming to educate, to ask other people for what we need. And so I just wanna name and normalize that that 
can be true. It can be hard to ask for some of Absolutely. these things. And as you said, and yet, if we don't ask, people often don't know because they, because we're also also different for each loss, but also in terms of our relationship to grief. And there is research on this that shows that there are different styles of grieving with no style being better or worse than the other. So some of us being very intuitive grievers where we experience emotion in grief very tangibly. We find it helpful to express and explore our emotions. And some of us experiencing grief in a more physical or cognitive way. And we express or experience grief more in active ways or reminiscing and in ways that involve more acting and doing. And so sometimes we can have judgment about other people's grief even when we go through the same loss or have lost the same person, I should say, because it's a different loss, even if it's the same person. Um, but we, we can get into conflict with other people who also have lost that same loved one because we have judgment about their grief process. We feel like it's not how it should be, or we judge ourselves. And, and so to just recognize that just because someone returns to work, three months after a loss or three hours after a loss that neither one is better or worse, that it's different and we're, we're each entitled to our own, own process. And so I think that's another reason why, as you said, it's so valuable to communicate about what we need because sometimes we can base what we think other people need off of what we think we would need or what we need in this moment. And that can be wrong. So there is just so much power in accurately expressing what, we need when we feel safe to do so, perhaps even being selective with whom we can trust to listen and meet us there um, because it gives people the opportunity to then give that to us. Whereas when we inaccurately express it or don't express it, we can be left feeling pretty alone and not supported or nurtured. Yes, and I appreciate so much you acknowledging the challenge and difficulty of it. I think that it's worth noting none of what we're saying and talking about doing is easy to do. Mm-hmm. I've had the life experiences of losing quite a few people I love and care about in, in, in short times and early parts of life too. And I've also had the life experiences of sitting with and talking with lots of people who have lost loved ones too. And so I, I'm able to, to talk about it the way I am with you as you are with me mm-hmm. because of a life journey that's gone through it. And, and I think, and so just because it sounds like it's easy to articulate, which it's not, you can hear me even trying to adjust my vocalization and my word structure as I'm doing it because I'm putting thoughts together as I'm sharing it with you, because it's, it's dealing with highly charged and difficult emotional topics. Mm-hmm. It's far easier to say than it is to do. Mm-hmm. And it's that, you know, taking from this what resonates with you. And it's not to say that all this is going to resonate with you at once because wherever you are and however, whatever stage in life you're listening to this from, different pieces will resonate to you at different stages. Mm-hmm. If you just lost someone three days ago, I would say to you, get on that couch, cry, do what you need to do to just take care of yourself. I always tell people like, you got to allow yourself the time to feel and whatever's coming up in those early stages is feel through it. And I wouldn't even necessarily go to some of these other things that we're talking about when you're in the depths of the snot sorrows, snot sobs and everything else. I'm not thinking right then of how I'm going to honor this person. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking my heart hurts. I feel like my chest is going to explode. My face hurts from crying so much. And I know I just need to cry this out and let it out. But as you go through different stages, you might come back to this and might think, okay, now I can try this, or this, some of this might resonate, or I'd be willing to test this out. You know, you can consider this kind of thing as it's like a, it's a buffet of tools and you can pick and choose what you want to sample and then what you want to go back for seconds on. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point that this is such an individualized process and that it evolves. And that was something that stood out to me when you were talking about some of the ways that you cultivated to honor your own grief process, as well as the loved ones that had died, which was that it was an ongoing process of you kind of listening to yourself about what was coming up or what 
thoughts and emotions got sparked about how to honor this person in a certain time, in a certain way. And so I do feel like there is an important element of being open to the shifting in this process. In, as you said, there being different phases that are not necessarily linear. So yes, in the immediate math, aftermath of, of a death or a loss, there may be a whole lot of like doing nothing except being with yourself. And that might be something that is an ongoing part of your life, that there are times in your life where that's what you do. So it's not like you do that part in the beginning and then never circle back to that. Yes. There may be really hard times in life. Maybe it's a time where you really wish that, that person was still there at that point in time with you, or maybe some memory gets activated in a really charged way. Sometimes these things can happen in unexpected ways, sometimes in unexpected, expected or unexpected and everything in between, but all this to say that, that it is an ever-changing landscape in terms of checking in with ourselves, figuring out what we need and, and being open to there being these different needs at different times that we can meet in different ways. Yes. Absolutely. I think that that is, that's where the grace that we can extend ourselves is going to be one of our greatest assets in healing. And so few of us, and I think to the, also the bigger point, societally, culturally, it's not built on extending grace. It's, it's, let's depress our emotion. And if that doesn't work, let's medicate our emotion or pretend it's not there. But really, I think the, the opportunity we all have is to extend grace to one another, extend grace to ourselves, by how we're feeling, how we're figuring out, extend it to others as they're trying to figure out how to interact and be with us and process. And, and, and they're, they're also in some ways, too, like many of, we don't realize as many of our people who we love, as we're going through and grieving, they, too, are also grieving. They're grieving in a sense of their own fear of how they've lost their friend as they were, their, their family as they were. I remember after Gabe died, I was in a relationship and that relationship fell apart a couple of months after. She could not handle me being sad. Mm -hmm. You know, the relationship was built very much on me being how I was before. Mm -hmm. And from her perspective, as she was viewing, because she had her own uh, challenges with grief that she had never dealt with, she saw me being sad and thought that was how the rest of my life was going to be. Mm -hmm. And so she made a decision that when Gabe died, a part of me died too. Mm -hmm. And that there was never, that part of me was never going to come back or a new part of me that could be even better couldn't grow in that space. Mm -hmm. And so I was going through my own heartbreak. She was going through her own heartbreak and it would be easy to judge her as being selfish or whatever it was, not being a good partner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for what's the point? Instead of just giving them the grace and saying, again, she's a human, I'm a human, we're all doing the best we can with what we have, mm -hmm. considering our life experiences, our traumas, our belief systems, everything else. And there's just, and so if there's a word that everybody could take away from this, if you're going through loss, grief, trying to heal, it's, it's grace. Mm -hmm. Give yourself grace. Give the grace to others. Mm -hmm. Be patient with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be patient with others. Be kind with others. This is a, not something where it's a one size fits all, as you said, Melissa, and as much as it would be great if you and I could sit here and say, well, here's seven simple steps you could follow. <laughs> each of those steps is going to have probably 7,000 possible derivatives from each of them. Mm -hmm. This is not a, this is not a choose your own adventure that necessarily has a linear progression to it. It's going to look more like this, where it's going to zigzag, loop-de-loop, -loop, come back, forth, right, left, up, and down. And that's Okay. You know, that's completely okay. And give yourself the grace to allow for that to be okay. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, I think so many of us are so quick to, to slap ourselves instead of giving ourselves a hug. Mm -hmm. And if we could all be more proactive in hugging instead of hurting, it would be just, it would be so helpful in the healing. I could not agree more. I think the giving ourselves permission for whatever ways in which our grief is showing up is, is so important. And like you said, to approach each other with compassion and understanding rather than judgment, because it's, it's easy to slip into that and to fall into that and can feel safer to fall into that when there are these black and white definitions of good, bad, unhelpful, helpful, and it can be harder to live in, in the gray, but it is so 
important when we are grieving to extend ourselves that grace and to feel like we don't need to fit into certain boxes and and to trust that we can handle what we are met with like you said if it's an unsupportive employer or some workplace policy if it's a best friend who doesn't show up for us in the way that we expected to trust that that we can navigate those challenges in our own time at our own pace in our own way even if there are challenges that we haven't yet encountered in our lives up until that point so so jesse i know that we're nearing the end of our time and i imagine that the two of us could talk for many many hours or days or weeks or months about this topic because there's just so much to unpack but i want before we wrap up to give you the opportunity to share or lift up anything that we haven't talked about that feels very much on your mind and heart that that you want to share before we close i was at the gym earlier today and i had some extra time so i was on one of the cardio machines and i was trying to find a machine that in this gym has all these tvs attached to the wall so there's dozens of tvs all over the place and i was trying to find a cardio machine that wasn't in front of tvs with the news on but inevitably i ended up on a machine that had two different news channels on and each of the news channels had competing headlines which were very which are very scary very uncomfortable to look at. And I started to think about this past year we've all kind of lived through. And it seems that in our society, we have more labels that we use and affix to one another on any given day than we've ever had before. And I think the challenge with labeling another human being is when we label the human being, we, we label someone, we're often removing the humanity. And we see not the human, but we see the label instead. And whether this is something that we do socially, politically, or we do it around the grieving process. And I think one of the biggest disservices we see to ourselves, we do to ourselves and others is affixing labels to that other. And I think that if there's one thing I could leave you all with this, it's that is that if you want to add more richness, joy, love, and happiness to your life, uh, give yourself permission to remove the labels that you might have affixed to yourself or to your fellow human. Because if you do that, what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to start to experience more of the humanness. And especially if you're trying to proactively heal from a loss, it doesn't take the pain of the loss away. But what it does do is it takes away the pain or the burden that comes with the label. And now you're not having to work through the label too. I'm broken, I'm this, I'm that you're able to just focus on really nurturing and healing from the loss. And you'll find too that you will experience humans entirely differently if you're able to just see the human and not the label instead. Mm. So for what that's worth, Melissa, that was just on my heart. And I hope that it connects with somebody. I love that. Well, it certainly connects with me because I think that while as humans, we label and judge, and that's part of how our minds work. I think that those labels create disconnection. They create barriers to intimacy and they cause us to avoid. It separates us from touching into the rawness of our emotions and our human experience. And so while that's understandable, when we allow ourselves to go there, there's so much promise for healing and connection and realness. And, and so I think when we can take that step towards removing the labels, we can see more clearly. We can see more clearly what's in front of us. We can more thoroughly meet ourselves and other people with more grace and kindness and compassion. And that's something that, that we all deserve and are entitled to. So that absolutely resonates with me and is a very powerful and beautiful note to end on. So Jesse, thank you so much for this conversation today. This was such a joy, such a delight. I know this is a topic that you and I both share a lot of passion for. And so I just so appreciate you and all that you are. And thank you so much for carving out this time today. Likewise, Melissa, I'm looking forward to continuing in the near future. Same. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes, that is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week, and I look forward to having you join next.